0: All right, if you would all please stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah, but not the part of Isaiah you think. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2 is where we're going to read from. Isaiah chapter 2, so starting in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is God's word, you may be seated. So tonight we're continuing our Advent series. So we're looking at the scepter tonight. It says joy there. I'm just going to warn you, it'll be a little while before we hit the joy part. Um, because we're talking about the scepter. And uh, we need to lay a little bit of groundwork before we actually get to the joy portion of this. But uh, we're looking at the scepter. Does anyone in their mind, when they think of a scepter, what, I'll, I'll ask this, what do you think of, when you think of a scepter, what do you think of? Jafar, thank you for being honest. I do appreciate it. I'm sorry? Pardon? Oh, yes, yes. Over here raising hands, like it. The Story of Esther, okay. Oh, like a weapon, yes. Believe it or not, that is one of the things I hoped would be said. Anyone else? Power, yes. These are all things. Best answer, Jafar. Just saying. <laughs> but even in that story, what was, what was Jafar's scepter? What was it? What was it representative of? What did it have? Power, right? Just a display of power, show of power. Yeah. And so as a scepter goes, and, and, and for us, we don't have a, a king, but usually it's associated with a ruler, with authority, with authority with a kingly type of, of figure, and that's not just in you know modern European kind of things, even though we do see that symbolized there, but it does go pretty far back. It does go to, back to Egyptians. It goes back to even Babylonian time. It goes all the way back. It, it's, it's been a symbol of power and of authority. I'm going to start to use that word instead, the word authority. It's been a symbol of authority for for a very long time. And you would have ceremonies where they would you know display the the scepter. It wasn't necessarily something that was held every day, but in those key times they would they would have that present. And that's that's more of what we probably would would think of as just the symbol. It wasn't used every day necessarily, but it was something that was there that was Preserved for the monarch or for the one with authority to have, to show, and to display power. For a lot of cultures, those would have some sort of symbol of power on top of it. Sort of representative. A lot of times, especially in a lot of European areas, it would be an eagle. Then in later years, you get to the Middle Ages, and that was replaced with a cross to sort of signify where they would state their power came from. Where their authority was derived. Real quick, you don't have to turn there, but just I'm going to turn there real quick and reference a passage. For me, looking at the topic, this was the first passage that popped into my head. was Psalm chapter 2. It discusses power and it discusses how the peoples of the earth and the rulers of the earth regard that. Verse one, you can just close your eyes and I want you to think of these figures of authority, the symbols of authority as I I read through this. Why did the nations rage? Why did the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage to the ends of the earth your possession. Verse 9, You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the passage that came to my head when thinking of the scepter. And there you see the scepter as sort of this symbol of authority, but then also a weapon. That's right, as a weapon, because it says that he will bash them, dash them into pieces, break them, crush them. And In fact, this is the first action that we hear of the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3. Right at the fall, with the curses, you actually have this prophecy made. That the one who would come, the one that would be born, the woman, his heel would be bruised, but he would crush the serpent's head. <clears throat> it's uh, not a clean symbol. It's not a, a happy symbol, necessarily. And so you wonder, how will we get to joy? Well, well, we'll get there, I promise you. I do want to talk about that practical use, though, because that's sort of the other side of the scepter that we see. The word for scepter is also used for the word staff. Now, when I say the word staff, it might change it a little bit. When I say the word staff, what do you think of? Ninja turtles. I love that answer. These first <laughs> answers, I think, are the best. Yes, Ninja Turtles is already taken. A staff, when we say a staff, and let's, if we're, yeah, shepherd. A shepherd, a shepherd's staff. Now I say a shepherd's staff, what does that, that make you think of? Now we're, we're kind of not in the same realm that we were with the, with the scepter. Now, now we're over here with, with the staff. Now, now that's, that feels a little different. When we think of a shepherd's staff, what are some of those pictures, the images, The words that are associated with that. Whoa, I got a lot of them. A hook? Yeah, like the hook on the top. Yeah, you already have like picture in there. Yeah. Servant? Oh, protection? Love it. Yes, absolutely. Sort of, we've got sound effects too. This is great. Yeah, so when we say scepter, we have one picture, right? Authority, power, I sort of thing. Jafar. And then we've got on this side, when we say staff, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, the hooker, the top. That was for what? That was to, to do what? If you're on the gong show, it pulls you off the stage. But if not used for that, it is used for, for guiding, for, for pulling back, to, you normally you'd hook them around the neck and kind of pull them around. It's for guidance. Right, so we have protection, guidance. What else could a staff be used for? Don't think sheep anymore, what else? For hiking, okay, so for stabilization, that's great. Yes, absolutely, what else though? What? Ah, a weapon. See, now we're finding that the scepter and the staff, when you actually come down to it, it, it's kind of similar in how it's practically used, right? Ah, to smack a someone but let's change that from a someone to a something. What is something that a shepherd would smack? Wow, yeah, lots of things. What, a lion, what else? A bear? A what? A puma? The, oh, uh, yes. Now, Now, as we're talking about this, we've got a staff, we're talking a shepherd, we're talking hitting lions and bears, now who? Are we starting to think of? Let's see if these word associations are leading to the right path here. I'm sorry? David. David. Was that what you were going to say? Yes. Just nod. Yep. That's right. So when we think about this, what's funny is David is exactly who I hoped we would end up thinking about. Because David captures both of those things, doesn't he? Starts with. A staff to be used for all those things we talked about, defense, protection, guidance. He even talks about lions and bears. And of course, when we get to David, we also would include the sling, right? But definitely the staff. And when we think Psalm twenty three, thy rod and thy staff see old King James came out. Thy rod and thy staff, they they comfort me. So when we start to think about those types of things, all of a sudden that staff feels a little bit different, but it is a weapon. One of the reasons why it's comforting is not just for the guidance and all those different things is because if there is anything that happens, it can be used to protect, right? That's a comfort. So what's interesting is in that person of David, you see both of those kind of things come together because later on, obviously, He's not just Shepherd David, he becomes what? He becomes King David. Israel is sort of unique in this regard, culturally, historically, because throughout the Middle East, shepherds are not known for being the most trustworthy of people. They are not regarded very highly, they're thought of as those wild people that live out in the wilderness and, you know, rough and tumble kind of guys. You don't want to meet them by yourself as you're traveling. They're kind of not trusted. But how, you know, however, in, in, in Israel, it's totally different, right? Not just David, but who else is a very famous shepherd that rose to power? At least authority. Moses. Moses was this, was this individual who could be trusted. He again led his people and his staff becomes this very important symbol. Who else Who else were shepherds that had very prominent roles in Israel's history? Jacob. Jacob is another one. And of course, the other patriarchs as well. Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, they're all herdsmen. Moses, absolutely. And Moses is sort of in that tradition, almost as though there is this through line from the patriarchs, and then you've got this time of of silence and they're in slavery and then here arises another shepherd to lead them out almost as though there's a a, almost like it's on purpose like there's somehow this symbolism that's going on and that's exactly what it is you have this idea of the shepherd right that kind of pulls through both now i would again let's refocus and go back to david because i think david becomes this really important and pivotal character who takes this symbol and it becomes something bigger. Okay, so you have this idea of both authority and protection, reigning and defense, sort of in the same vein in that person of David. Let's look real quick here at Psalm 45. We'll pop up on the screen here, but I encourage you to flip over there to you. Now, I want to start in verse 6. Because when you have the symbol of David, this this I shouldn't say the symbol of David, you have the person of David who sort of takes these symbols and embodies them in a very real sense. He sort of is this leader, protector. He's this one who's close to God. He's, he is this leader that is referred to throughout the Old Testament. But you find out in David's life that's actually he that is looking forward to another one who would actually perform these things to even a greater extent. So look at verses 6 and 7. Don't worry, these things will all come together. 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So I want to point out a couple of things here. We're talking about authority. It's connected to the scepter, right? Verse, uh, verse 6 says a scepter of your kingdom. And the scepter of uprightness. We're sort of taking both of these concepts and ideas and we're putting them together. You have loved righteousness and you hate wickedness. See, this is the nice sort of thing we like to focus on as far as the Lord. You're going to be on the throne. This is what we point to, and especially at Christmas time. Oh, he's born son of David. Here comes peace. Get ready, world. Here comes peace. But let's look a couple verses ahead of this. Because sometimes I think we want to get to the joy and we want to get to the peace and we want to get to salvation. But we don't really have a real path to that. We don't have a reason to get there yet. We state it, but how did it get here? Look at verse 4 in chapter 45 or Psalm 45. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach your, you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. And the peoples fall under you. The only reason you can have that next verse, your throne is forever, your scepter of your kingdom, the scepter of righteousness, of uprightness, and you can have love of righteousness is because Wickedness has been dealt with. The scepter has been used as a weapon. Now, this verse talks about arrows, but we'll get there. The righteous king enacts violence, and through that violence, there's then peace. We want to jump to the end, have God on the throne, and have there be righteousness, and have there be peace, and have there be joy. But without this first part, without these sharp arrows that take down the enemy you cannot have peace joy and righteousness this is why it has to be both micah 7:14 Verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff. Yeah, that sounds nice. The flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in the forest in the midst of the garden of the land, let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in uh, days of old. This, for us, I think, is where we want to get to. We want this picture of our God who is shepherd for our people. The reason why you want to have both, you want to have this king on a throne who takes care of his enemies and then sits on his throne and also have the picture of the shepherd, shepherd your people with your staff, is because both of those things have to go together. You can't have the second part without that first part. This is where we want to get to, and I'll, I'll be honest, this is better to put on a Christmas card than uh, verse uh, 7 from Psalm 45. turn with me Matthew 1 Matthew chapter 1 we'll spend a little time here on I think one of the most forgotten parts of the Christmas story of the nativity story however you want to say it it's left out of the plays usually the pageants Linus didn't quote this part Kind of, kind of leave this part out. Usually we get to Matthew and we say, let's talk about Jesus' birth. We jump to chapter 2. But look at chapter 1, verse 18. We could have, but I will spare you, a quick study in the genealogy. Instead, we'll summarize in just a moment. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We get this story from Luke, in a little bit longer version. Matthew summarizes in a verse. Verse 19, and her husband, Joseph, okay, we'll pause there for a second. I thought they weren't married yet. They were just betrothed. So how is he her husband? They were engaged, but they weren't married. Uh, engagement at that time was, was different than it is today. This was a, uh, a betrothal was a sort of a business arrangement between families. That sounds very romantic, doesn't it? Um, but there were a lot of things. If you had a lot of daughters, they weren't thought of as not valuable at all, but there's just the reality that once they're married, they're not in your household anymore. And so there was an arrangement made. Usually a price was paid because they would then lose that part of the, uh, that individual in the family to work around the house, work on the farm, work in the shop, whatever the family business happened to be. And so this was normally seen as part of that deal. So all of those arrangements had already been done. All the agreements had been made. Because all of those agreements had been done, things had been already accomplished in that realm, they were regarded as essentially committed. However, they had not, as it says here, come together. They had not actually been married yet. It wasn't done. But she was found to be with child. Not a great situation. So it says here, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I've heard people talk about this part to say, that's just cruel, that's just mean, why would he do that? It was his right under the law to go to the city gates, to go to the judges, and to make it very clear, this is not my child. This has not been through anything mutual. And he would be able to divorce her, He could then save face, however that would mean for her, it would be known and publicly known that she became pregnant before being married. It would be very difficult for her to be married after that. She'd probably have to go back to her family if her family was willing to take her back in. It seems like usually that's what would happen, but she would be shamed. So it says, Joseph being a righteous man, or I like the word that's used here in the ESV, a just man. He was unwilling to put her to shame, and so he was going to divorce her quietly, which meant when the story got out, because of course it will, he would bear part of that shame along with her. So do you understand the situation? Do you understand the kind of man that Joseph was? He didn't have to, didn't need to, Yeah, Mary says, I'm conceived from the Holy Spirit. He says, okay, I don't understand that. I don't know what that means. We actually don't have anything recorded here. We don't know if they even really talked face-to-face. We don't know any of that part, but at the very least, Joseph's like, okay, whatever this looks like, I'm going to just do this quietly. That shows you the kind of man that Joseph is. Side note, this is just the kind of man that God the Father would want to adopt his son. We talk a lot about Mary. Mary, did you know? Um, all these things about Mary, and you know she's got her song and all these things, we barely talk about Joseph, and yet, for a young man, you would need a good, just, righteous man to help raise the son of God and the son of man. Just this kind of man. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now it says here that it was in a dream. It says the Lord appeared to him in a dream, or I'm sorry, angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, What's that next phrase? Son of David. We'll come back to that. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. All right, confirmation. Probably still didn't know how that worked. But okay, an angel said it. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Didn't even get to pick the name. Joseph, Is just told, you will name him Jesus. Jesus meaning salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. This took place to fulfill what what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's go back to that phrase there, son of David. That is hugely significant, massively significant, and we skip over it scope over it quickly because we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Joseph, son of David. What about Jesus? Okay, yeah, I got it. But Joseph, son of David, this is a big deal. What does it mean to be a son of David? Later on, when Jesus is called son of David, what do we all say about that? Jesus, he's called son of David. That's a what kind of a term. That's a, that's a messianic kind of a term. That's a prophetic kind of term. Yeah, that's true. So what does that mean for Joseph? Because none of those things meant that for him. He's not son of God. He's not Messiah. So what does it mean for him? That phrase, son of David. See, for us, we, we have this issue because we don't use the phrases like this anymore. For someone to be called the son of something, well, I guess for us it's usually an insult, but son of something is meant that you are the embodiment of that individual or that thing so when Jesus is called son of man he's saying of himself I am 100% man I think that's why he liked to call himself that refer to himself I'm the son of man because it highlighted his mission Son of David. Son of David, hugely significant. It doesn't just mean you're in the lineage, because if you go back through all of the chronicles of the kings, which you have to be careful to not be operating heavy machinery as you do so, because as the kings used to do, hey, I have trouble sleeping. Read me the chronicles of the kings. But as you're going through the chronicles of the kings, son of David is not used of all the kings. Even though they all are in the lineage of David, it takes on a completely different understanding Because to be called a son of David means that you embodied and lived out and you had the totality of what that meant to actually be a ruler like David, to be the one that holds the scepter, to be the one that holds the staff, to be both the authority, to both be the protector, to be the one who God has called with that authority to lead his people in this way. So if you look back, I believe, and someone can correct me, only eight kings in Judah are called son of David. That's it. They're the ones who would say they're the righteous ones. The other ones are actually sons of their mother, whoever that was. The other ones. But to be called the son of David meant a lot. It meant that you embodied all of those things that David was. Now, for Joseph... Had all things been correct and proper, if they had not been under the Romans and instead had their own sovereign authority as a country and could have their own reigning kings, he would have been king. But he was not. But he was still called By the angel, son of David, which means he's just that kind of a man. He would have been the one that God would have entrusted with the nation, with leading them properly, both holding the authority and protecting his people. So, what better man? To raise the Son of God than Joseph, son of David. He would have held the staff. Look at verse 23. We're not going into the full context of this. I just want to talk about one word Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? You can cheat. It says it right there. God with us. Yes. God with us. This is the verse that ends up on a lot of the Christmas cards. And I, I, I want you all, I know you will be, but I want you to be honest. How many of you sent out Christmas cards that had this verse on it? I just, I just want to take a poll. It's not official. No one? All right. How many of you received a card that had this verse on it? Oh, yes, I see that hand. Which means you should about 10% of people raise their hands. So probably 10 of you. Um, This is is one of those popular verses, right? It's on on things concerning Christmas. And and part of this, the, the big promise, Emmanuel, God with us and it's stated in such a way so that people should take comfort take comfort in this that god is with us right that's how it normally is even people who don't necessarily buy into all that stuff would say that's a that's a wonderful notion right god with us a wonderful thing to think about baby jesus in the manger, God with us. And we could talk a lot about this whole idea that people like the idea of the baby Jesus being God in the manger because the baby Jesus can't condemn you. The baby Jesus isn't going to correct you. The baby Jesus isn't going to tell you what to do. It's just a baby Jesus, and we like that. Most people would enjoy that sort of a God with us that just sits there and looks cute, We would like that, generally, as a human population. We like that kind of a God. But I want you to think about what that really means, to say, Emmanuel, God with us. And this is where we go back to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 fits into what I like to think of as the forgotten chapters of Isaiah. Because normally when people start reading in Isaiah do they start in chapter 1? Most people like to start in chapter 6. Because that's a much more spectacular beginning to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah sees the Lord in the temple and he's called and sent off. So these first five chapters are sort of the, the lost chapters of Isaiah. However, these set up The proper understanding, I think, for the mission of God on earth in regards to his people and in regards to the Messiah. How's that for a teaser trailer for the first five chapters of Isaiah? We're going to look at chapter two here real quick. We read through this already, so I'm not necessarily going to read through all of it. But if you can think back to about 34 minutes ago, would you regard chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 as being a negative passage or a positive passage? Leif, what did we determine? Positive or negative? This here, we would say, this generally would be a positive, but look at that verse. That that verse 2. It shall come to pass in latter days. So this wasn't even then. I would actually say this hasn't even happened for us yet. Because the description here is a world where the mountain of God is honored higher than all the other mountains. Now when it says the mountain of God, to be elevated above all other mountains. It's not talking elevation, it's talking in prominence. Mountains were, where, were the place where people would go to meet with deities. They would go to meet with the gods because the mountains touched the clouds. They touched the sky, just high and above. And I don't know, you climb up high enough, start getting dizzy. Who knows? Maybe they just felt like, wow, you all euphoric. Who knows? Um, but mountains were regarded as these places where you'd meet with God in ancient times, even today. And so this would be the highest of mountains, not necessarily an elevation. But it talks about all the nations coming. All the nations would come. And they would say, we want to learn from the Lord. We want to hear from him. And it actually talks like the Lord is the one teaching them. And it says, we want to worship. We want to go to honor the God of Jacob. So they they have a proper understanding of who he is. They see, we want to go there. And based on that teaching, they get rid of their swords. They get rid of their spears. They don't learn war no more, as the old song says. Ain't going to study war no more. They don't need to. Instead, they will learn from the Lord. A perfect moral teaching from this high mountain. But notice who's not mentioned. Not until you get to verse 5, which brings you back to the present to say, House of Jacob, come, let's walk in the light of the Lord. This was encouraging to the nations, not so encouraging to the house of Jacob. In fact, go backwards. Go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1 discusses the wickedness of Judah. How they are rebellious. They've gone off on their own. They're violent. And the Lord tries to reason with them. Verse 18 Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God is trying to reason with them. No, let's, I want to work through this. Let's, let's get through this part here. Let's not dwell on this rebellious, wicked nature that you have right now, these things that you've set up. Let's, let's return. Let's come back. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. I mean, these are heavy heavy words to lay on the city to lay on on judah <clears throat> look at verse 27 and this is where we're going to see this pivot here verse 27 zion shall be redeemed by what by justice zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Verse 28, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. We want to focus on The peace that comes. But you can have no peace. You can have no salvation until you have justice. There must be justice first. And then peace. And then salvation. We don't have a God that showed up and just gave all the goodies, who overlooked sin, who overlooked rebellion, and just gave the good things. We don't have a God like that. We have a God who sends his Son on a special covert mission to become one of us, to live the perfect life we couldn't live, The enemy confounded, what is going on? What is this about? And through his actions, leads the enemy to the decision point where if they don't kill him, he will rise as a physical king. The people will rally behind him. Definitely after that triumphal entry, you know that's what they had to be thinking. And so the lamb tricks the serpent into killing him. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 20 and 21. The beautiful plan that God has. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was the plan all along. This covert mission for a child to be born to be able to strike a death blow to death and sin and trick the enemy into doing it. That... I just have to say, that had to be so embarrassing. Utterly humiliating for the enemy to realize that they're the ones that did it. They're the ones that killed the king of glory and actually initiated, inaugurated righteousness being brought to man. That is, that's just awesome. So humiliating such a mockery for God to use the enemy to bring this about. And so we talk about this. Now we finally get to joy. Joy can only be possible if sin and death are dealt with. Justice is the bedrock of joy. You cannot have joy unless all those things are taken care of, unless sin, unless death, unless your destination is taken care of, you cannot have joy. You can have a false peace. You can have, um, let's just ignore all the bad stuff. You can have a dog sitting at a table drinking a cup of coffee in the midst of a fire. That's okay. It's fine. You can have that kind of joy but you cannot have real joy unless there is justice. And I know we look around and sometimes we say, I don't see a lot of justice. But right now, we're waiting for that perfect justice. Peace on earth presupposes that the Messiah's justice is at work. We live out that peace. We live out that joy because we are the ambassadors. We know where salvation comes from. Because of justice. Because God is a God who holds a scepter and it's not just for show. He will crush with that scepter. He will destroy. He will smash. The crucifixion of Jesus is the goal of the first advent. It was the death of death. It was the first and supreme violent victory over sin and death. You have an example of the opposite. King Saul was told to go to destroy the Amalekites. And if you remember that story, he does all of it except for a couple of things. He doesn't kill the best of the livestock. Oh, we were going to sacrifice to you, Lord. And he doesn't kill King Agag, as he was told to. He is the example of trying to get to peace without proper application of violence that is necessary to destroy evil. So God had Samuel finish it. This is a weird thing to talk about at Christmas. But let me just tell you, if you really want to have real joy, not ignorant joy, Not joy that ignores problems, but a joy that is actually derived from a solution to sin and death. We have to go through the scepter, or we will have no joy. Jesus, in living this, became our example for daily living. So for right now, you could say, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Matthew 16, 24 Jesus implores his followers. He says, all of you must take up your cross daily and follow me. There was no one, no one in the Roman Empire who picked up a cross who did not die. You might say, oh, what about that one guy who carried Jesus' cross? Okay, but you get what I'm saying, right? There's nobody who was picked up a cross who was condemned to die who did not die. That's what happened. And if Jesus says we have to do that daily. It's a daily remembrance of what we must do to our own sin. Mortification of sin. It's a practice of real and true justice in our lives and God's authority in all of our days. And it's a preview for our, uh, last in our Advent series when we talk about Second Advent because that's where we see all these things fulfilled. It's a continuation of this. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the promises that were made. Not promises to overlook our sin, not promises to forget, not promises that you wouldn't bring it up, but you made a promise to deal with sin, to destroy it, that we might have right relationship. Lord Jesus, we know that peace and joy and salvation can only come through right relationship. We know that in the name, Emmanuel, God with us, for us it is a blessing and a joy But for all those who are opposed to you, it is a bitter warning. A bitter warning of what is to come. So Lord Jesus, as we see Paul writing in 2 Corinthians, I pray you would make us your ambassadors. That we would warn those who are far from you to know you. To come near to you. So that when it is said by someone... The Lord is here. God is with us. Instead of running into the caves to hide, running to the cleft of the rock, instead we would turn and run with joy to our Savior, to our Shepherd, the one who cares for us, the one who guides us, and who loves us. Lord, I pray you would use us this Christmas season, this Advent season, Lord, to explain this, to relay this, to tell why we are so joyful in this season. It is because God with us is a promise of joy, peace, and salvation. I pray that we would place our hope in you, that we would, Lord, long for you, for your, for your presence with us, Lord. And that relationship be the cornerstone of our worship of you this Advent season. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.